Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 30 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. Learn more about the forum online at westminsterforum.org. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, too. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and the moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. Dr. Frederick Luskin is director of the Stanford University Forgiveness Project, a senior consultant in health promotion at Stanford, and an associate professor at the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology. His extensive research on forgiveness therapy has demonstrated the power of forgiveness to create physical and emotional change in individuals and organizations and to lead people to lives of greater peace and satisfaction. Over the years, he's worked with men and women on both sides of the conflict in Northern Ireland. He's taught forgiveness skills to teachers in Sierra Leone. He's worked with financial advisors during the various economic crises of the last decade to enhance conflict resolution and stress management skills. He's the author of the books, Forgive for Good, Forgive for Love, and stress-free for good. And he currently serves as co-chair of the Garden of Forgiveness Project at Ground Zero in Manhattan. At today's forum, he'll provide insight in, into the transformative power of the practice of forgiveness. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Dr. Frederick Luskin. Hey, thank you, thank you. Um, it's beautiful here. Um, Stanford has a, a church, memorial church with the stained glass, and there, there's always something very, I don't know, powerful when I walk in and see such, you know, just, just such beauty, and um, it, it's, it's, it's easy for me to connect like why I teach forgiveness um, when I come into a church, that I, what, what, what my goal was 15 years ago when I started the Stanford University Forgiveness Project was to take a concept, forgiveness, that was to me, I, I wouldn't say buried, but um, not adequately expressed in the religious traditions and see if I could secularize it so that it could become available to be taught as education to anybody. And the, the genesis for that was twofold. One, I had been really badly hurt and didn't know what the heck to do. And because I was like most other human beings, what I did was become a less pleasant human being. That was my solution to the problem of being hurt. So I became grouchy and bitter and mistrusting and a little defensive and a little less kind. You know, all the things that make people want to be warm and fuzzy towards you. <laughs> you know, you keep, it's like funny, you become hurt you become prickly, people keep away from you, and you wonder, what's the world doing to you? Okay, so 
I became the kind of person that, and I, and I can tell you what happened. My closest friend stopped being my friend almost on a dime. It was like one day, I mean, not quite one day, but one day we're absolutely close. Within a week, we're in no contact. And while I know what happened, I didn't do anything. And, and there was something devastating. This was when I was younger, which is now what I see at the heart of all the wounds that people have that they can't forgive. There was something devastating about the helplessness, about the clear sense of injustice, and the vulnerability of knowing that the world can hurt me, not just without my permission, but almost without mercy. And that, those are devastating awarenesses, and each person who doesn't forgive gets lost in those awarenesses. So when I started this project, it was with a deep sense of empathy for the human experience of being hurt, not understanding it, not understanding why one deserved it, and literally having no idea what to do to recover. It took me years. And within those years, I experimented with all the things that human beings experiment with that do not work to recover from woundedness. As I described before, I became a less pleasant human being. Many people make that their life's work. Um, <laughs> I thankfully only did it for three or four years. Um, but the, the, the key to this is I saw two gaps when I was dis in my own mind discussing with myself, what do I do? The first gap was that the religious traditions, and particularly Christianity, told me to forgive, but gave me no clue as to how. That seemed like a grievous problem to me. It wasn't just a problem for me as a person. It was a problem for me as a scientist and a teacher. Okay, so somebody tells you forgive everybody, or forgive seven times 70. How does that help you? you can, somebody could tell you to forgive 900 times 900. What, like seven times 70, 900 times 900. How do you do it? And the second problem that I saw was the secular community, basically psychotherapists, ignored the spiritual qualities and left people on their own basically to hack around in misery. Like at that point in 1995, I saw that psychotherapists primarily, and even so now, were like high priests of unhappiness. <laughs> right? They had no idea how to make you happy. They weren't necessarily happy themselves, <laughs> but they knew all about depression and anger and abuse. But that's not enough. And so, again, what the dissertation, the Stanford Forgiveness Project started as my dissertation. I was graduating from Stanford, getting a PhD, and I thought, my interest is in how do you make spiritual practice available in a way that doesn't require one to have a religious worldview? You know, that it's simply true for human beings. And that has been the great good that I have found teaching forgiveness and researching it 
and trying to help people is that inside of many people who have been hurt is a heart yearning for release. And whether you call it forgiveness, or whether you call it loving kindness, or whether you do it because Jesus wants you to, or whether you do it from a place of secular humanism, or whether you do it because you want to control your blood pressure, it don't matter. What matters is doing it. And what matters, and what matters is spreading some kindness in this world rather than bitterness. And at the heart of what I perceived as both psychotherapy and religious traditions was that goal, just badly articulated. That, yes, we want to release people from their pain so that they can then go ahead and be nicer people. And the closest thing that came to me to symbolize or synthesize that information was the Dalai Lama's very simple statement that his religion is kindness. And I saw that in this world, the big reason why people are not kind is they hold their wounds up as a shield and say, now why should I be kind? I was mistreated. Why should my country be kind? It was mistreated. Why should I be kind to my wife or my husband? They didn't love me the way I wanted to. Why should my neighborhood be kind to your neighborhood? You hurt somebody. You lied. Why should red states be kind to blue states? Because you disagree or you voted for the wrong person. We as human beings have embedded in our consciousness an excuse for our lack of goodwill. And that's our wounds. We use that as a shield from us having to do our best. And I saw that this forgiveness issue was an enormous issue for human beings, just an enormous issue, because we ruin our families with it, and we stay at war between countries, and we hold on to a sense of ourselves as aggrieved. Long past it does anybody any good. So at the most molecular level, we have a 50% divorce rate in the United States. You don't have a 50% divorce rate if people are forgiving. You can, it, it's impossible. It can't be that one out of every two couples is that horrendous to each other that if you dose them with a little pixie-dusted forgiveness, you couldn't lower that rate. It's just unimaginable to me. So at the very basic level, <clears throat> excuse me, of family organization, we're not forgiving. And then you look at the state of the world. And so what I started to understand was there was this need for somebody, and I wasn't the first, but I was at the very beginning, of people to do research on spiritual qualities using secular means using secular mechanisms that had been shown to work and addressing spiritual issues and teaching people, just directly teaching them. You can ride a bike, you can learn to forgive. You know, you can fall off your bike, you can learn to not forgive. Practice, human quality of learning and practice. The place for me that energized me was the sense of doing research on this. 
that I really wanted to show as a person who believed in both science and religion, that the religious traditions carried within them great truths that were true at tangible levels, not just ethereal levels. If forgiveness didn't lower people's blood pressure, who needs it? No, seriously. If it's just going to give you like, good karma or a place in heaven, like, well, how practical is that? <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, what, what good does that do you in getting along with your kids? Or what good does that do you for getting along at work? Or what good does that do you with getting along with yourself? What I believed in my bones was that these religious traditions could be shown to be true at the most tangible, practical levels. That we could measure blood pressure, and we could measure stress chemicals, and we could measure how tight your shoulders are when you hate somebody. And we could show that if you release those bitternesses and hatreds and wounds, your shoulders come down. Well, for me, that's, that's like better tomorrow than karma. And, and I hope I have good karma. I'm just saying that you needed tangible results. And I also wanted to show that it was teachable. That you didn't just need a model of somebody who died 2,000 years ago in extremis. That you could teach this. And so parents could teach their children. And communities could teach their members. And then the, the tragedy at Nickel Mines came, and the Amish showed what people who deeply, deeply take the wisdom of forgiveness and embed it in their culture and believe with their deeds that when Jesus says to forgive, they're supposed to forgive. I can't tell you how many churches I get invited to because the pastor or minister says everybody here hates each other. Not here? Okay. I wasn't invited here. <laughs> here they just hate the minister. They love each other. <laughs> no, I'm just, you know, I'm just, I'm just saying, like, making this stuff, taking it home is hard. And I wanted to contribute to the development of simple practices that could be made into workbooks, that could be taught in schools, that could be like delivered through group work that we do, that somebody could show up for a half a dozen 90-minute sessions and get over deep wounding, and we showed that. We did. We showed that. We showed that we could take people, even whose like children were murdered, and make them more forgiving. And we showed that we can take people even whose like, daughters were raped, or whose you know, spouses were assaulted, or even little nothings like their neighbor built their fence an inch and a half onto their property. We've even had people come in with that problem. And I want to tell them to go home. <laughs> and you know, it's funny, because I was raised in New York, and I have a little bit of that edge. And so when people come in with nonsense, like, it takes every ounce of my self-control <laughs> to not say, an inch and a half? <laughs> Who's got more of a problem? You who measures it. <laughs> right? 
or them who build a fence. And, and, and that's an issue I have when people, you, you, um, like when, when couples, not couples, when exes come in to complain about their partners, which they do all the time, it's amazing how many, and, and this is colloquial, this is my colloquial language, how many women have married ex-husbands from hell? <laughs> I have met thousands. I have an image of this factory somewhere creating bad ex-husbands. Because probably 60% of the people who come into forgiveness work in the Bay Area are like 40 and 50 year old women who married the wrong guy, but now language them as like the ex-husband from hell. Okay, so I'm sitting there and I, I, I have self-control issues, you know, like, well, why'd you marry him? Okay. All that be as it may, the quality that I am looking at is deep inside of everyone, at least everyone that I can see, is a little place inside that craves peace. And I believe that that's the same place that the spiritual traditions aim for. There's a little place, there's a, a, an availability of each person to be at peace. And when you're at peace, when you're really at peace, you have no enemies. And that's my definition of forgiveness. When we're at peace, it has nothing to do with anybody's behavior towards us. Nothing at all. Nothing. It has to do with our reclaiming our peace. That said, there's a period of legitimate grief. And when we're hurt, we need to express it, and we need to grieve, and we need to feel the pain. And then I am absolutely convinced, as in the two everything, there is a season, that there's a time for grief and there's a time for letting it go. And both are essential. And I meet people stuck in grief. That's who I work with who do not understand that everything in this life moves on. Everything. Everything passes and everything changes. And every wound is meant to be released after it's felt. Every single one. And so from within that place, it's not whether the world is fair or whether we've been treated kindly. This world is filled with unkindness and filled with horror, and has always been so. I, I have a friend who's a minister who constantly reminds me that Jesus said, you know, the poor will always be among us. That we, at least at this point in our evolution, we're not given a world that's easy or simple or fair or just. The question is, what do we do within that world? And the piece that I look at is when that world harms us, how do we respond? That's the piece I work at. How do we respond so we then regain our ability to contribute goodwill to this world? That's the forgiveness piece. And I know now, having done this work for 15 or more years, 
and having done a dozen research projects on our methodology, that most people are capable of reclaiming a moment of peace inside of themselves so that they can remind themselves that there's a small place in them that is already healed and just needs to be excavated. And that peace does not depend on whether somebody else apologizes. It doesn't depend on whether somebody is right or wrong. It depends on whether or not we can find that place within ourselves. And so what I teach and the books that I have written are about finding that place. So let me, let me, one of the things that I do in almost every talk is I lead a very brief meditation practice just, just to show you what it is that we do. So I'm going to do that right now. It'll be short, but I want you to just get a taste of it. So I'm going to ask everybody to please close their eyes. And I'm going to ask you to relax your body. And this will be a short experience. Relax your body and see if you can quiet down your breathing. Which means that when you inhale, you want your belly to gently expand. And when you exhale, you want your belly to gently contract. And then what I'd like you to do when you've breathed into and out of your belly maybe three or four times that way, I would like you to bring an image to your mind of someone you adore. I would like you to bring an image to your mind of someone you adore. And bring that image crisply and clearly and hold it and even savor it. Savor the fact that you're lucky and gifted enough to have love. And then as one last piece of this, because I am doing this quickly, see if you can feel the love you have for this individual almost in your own heart, just as you sit here. Just see if you can like warm your own heart for a moment. And then let go of that image. Relax back into your belly for one more slow, deep, full inhalation and exhalation. And then allow your eyes to open. Now what I have found is five minutes of practice like that is better preparation for forgiveness than a couple of psychotherapy sessions.
that from that place inside of each of us, we can start practicing kinder speech towards anybody. When we calm down, when our heart opens, we don't wish anybody harm. The practice is to strengthen this. The practice is to detach ourselves from the personal part of wounding. That's after grief. And to see wounding as universal. Pain is an essential byproduct of being a human being. And having people hurt us is part of the package. What we can do is feel the pain, depersonalize it a little bit, eliminate the need for an enemy, and bear our burden. We can. And we can do that because we remind ourselves of the fact that every, not everybody, but many, 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 many people have hearts that can be opened more. And a practice like that for five minutes and then an instruction to speak from that place. Speak from that place. Tell us what that place has to offer. We know what the angry part of your nervous system has to say, but we don't know what the loving part of your nervous system has to say, and it's time. And then practice, and practice, and practice some more. And I see that as like an educational process. You know, small, but pointed. And I have done this work now, it's being used all over the world. It's effective, it's simple, and it's doable. Like I can teach the techniques that we have. I've given talks at medical schools. I've given talks at law schools. I've given keynote address at the American Bar Association. I come to churches. It's because my, again, my deep belief is that forgiveness and compassion and goodwill and loving kindness and tolerance and all the things that churches promote are latent in every human being. Latent. And because of that, we can teach people how to access it. And, and we can teach them through whatever portal, like they want to hear it. So I'm not in competition with anyone. I mean, you know, it's not like I'm trying to say there's anything wrong with the way churches do it. Many, 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 many people, like, receive incredible inspiration from the example of Jesus. I do. And many, many, many people get great benefit from psychotherapy. I'm a psychotherapist. But I wanted to create something else, some educational technique, some skill set that came between those two and that became a technology that could be used 
in the simplest formats. And, and just as, as an, an example of that, and I think I'll finish with this, you know, th this work is now being adapted for use in VA hospitals, you know, for people who are coming back from wars, in part because they have so much self-forgiveness to do. And, and this is both inspiring and troubling. It turns out that soldiers often have a harder time forgiving themselves for harming other people than they do for being harmed. And, and that's a testimony to our inherent goodness. But when they come back from having harmed people, <clears throat> I'm glad that there's an available technology now to help them do it. And one last piece about that, that over the years, you know, when researchers have looked at like how many people in wars actually fire their weapons, in the Civil War it was less than half. And it's been increasing as the ability of the military to both select people who will do it and to create the appropriate training so that people want to do it. But even in World War II, they assumed that about a quarter of people never fired their weapons, which to me is one of the most inspiring things about being a human being that I can imagine. That even when people are firing at us, we won't kill. And so that's, that is, again, that's my inspiration, that there's enough human goodness to try to locate and tap into and access and help unlock. And the little piece of that that I have chosen is called forgiveness. I thank you all. Thank you, Frederick Luskin. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. Learn more about us online at westminsterforum.org, and you can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is Director of the Forgiveness Project at Stanford University, Dr. Frederick Luskin. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I invite you to join us at Westminster for our next forum on Friday, June 24, at 7 p.m. Friday, June 24, 7 p.m., when Krista Tippett, host of American Public Media's radio show On Being, will explore spiritual genius, lessons for living. And now, Dr. Luskin, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. One often hears a connection between forgiveness and forgetting. Does one need to forget what has happened in order to forgive? Um, that, that, like forgetting, forgiving fallacy, is one of the reasons why people don't forgive. And there are a number of fallacies. It, it would be an act of almost intentional cruelty to try to suggest to somebody who had lost their son due to murder that they forget. It's a very simple truth. Forgiveness means to remember differently. 
Forgiveness does not mean to forget. It means to remember without the enemy. That's how it. Can you say something about the implications of your work for children in school, on the playground, at home? Um, there's there's got to be caution of taking an adult training and creating it for children. Um, children's cognitive abilities are very different. Their, their need to be protected is very different. And their ability to grieve without adult assistance makes it a more challenging thing. That said, there, are, there is one other program that has adapted its curriculum for children. We are in the process of adapting its curriculum for children because it's going to be taken back this summer to the country of Sierra Leone to become part of their, their, their curriculum. But I have had to rely on elementary school teachers, not my own expertise, to do the translation. The thing that I just want to offer caution is an adult can handle certain things that a child can't. If a child is being mistreated, protection and knowing something is wrong are essential to their development. It's not as essential for an adult. It still is essential. But there, the, 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 the translation problems from our approach of take responsibility and change have to be adapted for work with children. Can you say more about what you found to be the steps that someone moves through as they go from grief to forgiveness? Yeah. Um, the grief is an interesting topic because my world of professionals has tried to claim it and, and call it a problem. Um, the most recent data is that most people get through grief in a modest period of time. And the modest period of time is, appears to be, I mean, like the loss of a spouse or you know, a divorce or some, some major wound that's not like catastrophic. Six months to two years. The therapeutic profession has done this with a number of things has tried to pathologize it. And the latest research is that going to a therapist or a counselor has no effect at all on the grief process, except for people who are stuck. So one of the things that I want to, that's the reason I'm saying this, is I want to articulate the need with understanding grief to be gentle and patient and understand that human beings, when they lose something precious, hurt. And they may hurt for a while, but they won't hurt forever in the same way. When we are willing to work with people in forgiveness, when we deal with people who have had family members murdered, we put a minimum of two years after. So we don't, we don't even negotiate. But it sometimes can be more but the criteria we use, and I think this is part of the question, is <clears throat> can the person clearly articulate the harm? 
And can they clearly articulate what was wrong about it? And that's more than just, my father was a jerk. People can do that very quickly, but they can't necessarily soberly describe what happened and what harm came to them. Second, have they experienced the normal range of human emotion around the experience? Anger, fear, sadness, vulnerability, bargaining. You know, not that they come in any particular order, but have they explored more than just depression or anger? And last, have they shared their pain appropriately? Those three don't have the strongest um, boundaries, but we have found that with people who can say yes to most of that, they're ready to start the process of forgiving. Step number nine of the 12 steps of recovery goes like this. Make direct amends to such people I have harmed, except when to do so would injure them or others. The question is, does your research look into the, the step of asking for forgiveness as opposed to just offering it, but asking to be forgiven? No. <clears throat> we have done research on interpersonal forgiveness of the granting of forgiveness. The one thing, and I, I started this after spending, not after, but concurrent with spending a year in a, in a, in a drug and alcohol training at a VA hospital. And so the 12-step programs were part of the genesis for this work. When we talk about self-forgiveness, we try very hard to get people to make amends because it appears to be one of the ways that people can rejoin humanity after they may have harmed some of humanity. The question about who you see as role models in forgiveness, and one of our questioners, listeners here suggests Nelson Mandela, Abe Lincoln as well-known exemplars of forgiveness. Any other well-known people or any examples of models of forgiveness you can think of? You know, there, there, there are so many, like, wonderful stories of forgiveness. Um, you know, there's a, there's a man who lives in Northern California who was seven years old when the bomb dropped on Nagasaki, and he was in Japan. And he was not that far from the center and he was buried in rubble, and he and one other student were the only two people to come out of their school alive. And, oh, sorry, and his parents were killed. And he was taken to an orphanage, and then brought to the United States, and spent years disliked by people in both cultures. The people in the United States had no sympathy for him because Japan had attacked us, and the people in Japan had no sympathy for him because he had been rescued by Americans. He was a seven-year-old boy. And he has severe physical problems from this experience. And yet he does what I do. He tries to go around and, using his experience, teach people to forgive. I've met another man who was in a North Vietnamese tiger cage, you know, the small cage, for two and a half years as a prisoner of war. And he goes around now talking and, and I think, lecturing with the 
North Vietnamese officer who imprisoned him. So if you'll look, you will see great examples of forgiveness. But if you inquire of people, and this is the exciting part, you almost can't have an intimate relationship without forgiveness, because everybody's crazy. <laughs> no, it's true. Everybody's nuts. And if you're married, you know how nuts your partner is. And if you ask them, they know how nuts you are. So simply to endure another human being for years means you've had to forgive. I just think it should be made more front and center and honored. Have you, have you discovered cultural variation in the experience of forgiveness? Is one culture, Asian, Hispanic, Latin American, African American, do they seem to forgive at different rates or in different ways? Um, you know, I don't have enough expertise in that. I know that the few studies on forgiveness haven't shown that wide a cultural difference that many, many, many people in many, many, many cultures hold grudges. It appears to be a universal human trait. Its expression is different. Again, I have seen only a few, like subcultures, that appear to teach their people not to take offense. Ours not being among them. <laughs> we have uh, a number of questions about 9-11 and uh, about the death of bin Laden recently. Okay. Any comments from the perspective of forgiveness about that situation? You know, that, that question was asked me before, before I even came up here. Um, and, and it's impossible for me to just give a forgiveness answer to that because I have a political point of view which would influence it and I've done some work with 9-11's you know, family members who lost other family members, and I, I co-chaired the Garden of Forgiveness initiative in New York for a number of years, and I'm very close friends with the person who, did, who ran the relief efforts after 9-11 at the local church there. So this is not a, a subject that I am untouched by. But I will say that ultimately, I was not gratified by what I saw in this country, the celebration of his death. I, I, no, I mean, I, I did not find that inspiring. And I thought to myself, when I see that in other countries, it makes me anxious, that I don't trust their peacefulness and their ability to not have bloodlust. Um, also, killing somebody, even they did as heinous a thing as bin Laden, does nothing to end our cycle of violence. And it's just, a no, no, it's just another moment in humanity's endless, endless quest to achieve peace through violence. Now, all that said, from a political point of view, even as a forgiveness teacher, I could see the United States needing to search out and destroy the person 
who had killed so many Americans. But that's just my own political point of view. That's separate. I can't answer that piece as a forgiveness teacher because I have a political point of view. So there's the best I can do for you. Does our nation need to wrestle with the question of forgiveness when it comes to 9-11? I think every nation needs to wrestle with the question of forgiveness. I think the fact that we over-demonized Al-Qaeda has harmed our culture. I think the fact that we have created like a terrorist terror in response to the offense is not that different from, say, a woman who's had a bad marriage and then hates all men. It's an overreaction based on fear and stress. And it's very possible that had there been some forgiveness in the mix, from my point of view, our reaction might have been more temperate and better to help us. I feel that every time I go through airport security, you know, it's like, there's something there that is another manifestation of what happens when we hold our wounds too tightly and close this down. That, that's the best answer I can give you. Can you describe the Garden of Forgiveness Project in Manhattan that you've been involved with? Describe what? The Garden of Forgiveness Project. Well, for a number of years, myself and a minister very, very nascent project, but we planted or helped people plant around the country small gardens to honor forgiveness because there were so many gardens to honor war and destruction. And so we simply wanted to create an alternative, even though, and I will tell you that all my work that I do for anybody at a VA hospital or for a soldier is given freely. Like, I, I have only, like, not just admiration, but a knowledge that our military is like my body's immune system. It's necessary. So I am not a, a total pacifist. What I am, though, is aware that we live in an unbalanced world which relies too much on violence and anger and bitterness to solve its problems, and not enough, from my point of view, on decency and a compassionate forgiveness with intelligence behind it. One of our listeners says this, an old Norwegian got Alzheimer's, which meant he forgot everything except his grudges. <laughs> Do you work with seniors? Do you work with seniors in nursing homes? <laughs> um, yeah, you know what's interesting? Two things that are interesting. When we did our research projects with men and women from Northern Ireland, they told that same thing about the Irish. <laughs> and secondly, what's really interesting about working with seniors is they, they seem to have a bimodal distribution. Bimodal being there's two, two equally powerful trends. Some seniors get nicer, some seniors get more curmudgeon-y. Some seniors look at life and say, hey, what do I got, 10, 5, 15 years left? Why waste it in bitterness? Other seniors say, I've taken it for as long as I can. All gloves are off. <laughs> um, 
So I think the middle holds, but the distribution gets wider for seniors. You, you began by telling a story of your relationship with your friend. Did you ultimately forgive your friend? What is the state of that friendship now? Good question. Um, he and I are best friends again. Um, otherwise, I couldn't stand up here. All right? Like, seriously, like, what would that mean? Okay, forgiveness guy shoots ex-friend, gets out of jail four years later, and then goes talking about it? Um, I tried everything including psychotherapeutic techniques, none of which did me any good. I remember sending him like a, an I message thing, which psychotherapists do, where they say, I hate you because rather than you stink, as if that softens the blow. All the data on I messages is they do no good because everybody gets the vibe that's under the message, right? Who cares if you say, I do it, if you still say terrible things about somebody? So I wrote him one of those I messages, and he wrote me back like a postcard saying, oh, nice to hear from you, where you been? And so I, I got even more upset, because not only had he done that, but he was insensitive. You know, it gets worse, right? And a moment came, this is, this is true, a moment came, where I was not willing to have unkindness rule my nervous system anymore. And that's when the Stanford Forgiveness Project was born, when I wanted me back. And so at that moment, I looked to forgive. And I did so completely and fully, and we've been as close friends almost now for 20 years. So it's possible, it's, do it's doable, and there's only a few minutes when it's weird, like when you first see somebody, that's weird. <laughs> we, we have time for one last question. As you look at the American cultural scene today, the divisions, red state, blue state, the way uh, media has in some ways exacerbated those decisions and politicians to that, for that matter too, are you hopeful as a, uh, a teacher of forgiveness for our nation? I'm going to give two answers to that. One is, one does what one does without waiting for the big picture to change. I teach forgiveness because I teach forgiveness. I believe in it. I've helped thousands of people. I believe that possibly as I'm giving this talk, Somebody else somewhere else is preaching hate, and that's their, that's their privilege as well. I do what I do. What I would like to believe is that more people can do what they do to spread peace. But I want to give another answer to that question. I'm going to give it as quickly as I can, but it's a story. And it's a story that I'd like you to take away with, which is be very, very, very careful about whatever negativity or harshness comes out of your mouth because it's related to the red state, blue state thing. I was teaching somebody, I was teaching at a, at a retreat center, and it was right after the election of 2004, and this was in a very liberal area, and many people were really upset that George Bush had won re-election. And one of the women in the room there was equally upset, and I was trying to calm everybody down and say, be nice, 
It's just a political opinion. You'll get over it. You don't know who's right or wrong. Forgive. Just be good. And nobody was buying. <laughs> nobody was buying. And this woman then raised her hands and said, let me give you a story that will help explain what Fred's trying to say. She said, I called my father, and he lived in the Midwest somewhere, and this was on the coast in California. And, and my father and I were talking, and we got into politics, and that's always a mistake. That's what she said. And many of you may have children on the West Coast for whom it's a mistake to have a conversation. But the dad said, who are you voting for, honey? And she said, John Kerry. And then she then said, I made a mistake by saying, and dad, who were you voting for? And he said, George Bush. And her stomach started to tighten. But then he said this, which changed her whole experience. When she, he said, I'm voting for George Bush. And honey, I just want to tell you something. When I hear you say you're voting for John Kerry, every time my, your mother and I hear that, we wonder where we went wrong with you. And she got it, that her mind had poisoned her towards her father, and her father's mind had poisoned him to her, and it was just about as nothing as who you're voting for. So thank you all. Thank you, Frederick Luskin. Thank you very much for being here. Please join us now for lunch in the Great Hall to the left or right, and we'll see you on Friday evening, June 24th.